Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, a show where we talk to experts who've taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have sailed around the world to those who've started thriving businesses and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy this show. This is episode 19 with Sarah Rob O'Hagan. This episode was brought to you by Toad & Co. Formerly called Horny Toad out of Central California, this great outdoor clothing company makes 90% of their products using eco-friendly materials, whether it's organic, plant-based, or recycled fabrics. They also have a program called Design for Good, which totally kicks ass. They take a portion of every single item they sell and put it towards exposing people with disabilities to life-changing trips in the outdoors. Their mission also aligns perfectly with having a wild idea worth living. They're all about inspiring people to live their fullest lives, and they're rabid supporters of following your passions and refusing to settle. They also have a great tagline, which is keep good company, exactly why I started Wild Ideas Worth Living. You can check out all of their amazing products, their mission, and the ambassadors of all abilities they work with at toadandco.com. Sarah Rob O'Hagan is the founder and chief extremer of Extreme You. She also just wrote the book of the same title. She's had some amazing jobs at world-class companies. She was the marketing manager at Air New Zealand. She was at Virgin Records. She was a marketing director at Nike. She was the president of Equinox and the president of Gatorade, now the CEO of Flywheel. She's also from New Zealand, which happens to be my favorite country in the world. She has this wonderful, wonderful accent, and she's not afraid of a good sheep joke. What I like about this interview is Sarah is all about being the most extreme version of you, but she also talks about how to live wildly, even if you work for a big company. She also talks about failure, which is something she's not afraid of. And she has some great nuggets about business, about life, about having a work-life balance, and so much more. This is a good one, so I hope you enjoy the show. All right, well, welcome, Sarah, to Wild Ideas Worth Living. We're so excited to have you on. I know you've got a book coming out, or you just came out. So how's that going, by the way? Extreme You. Oh, it's it's awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Oh, you're so welcome. Actually, I was going to start with a question, but really, you know, this book just came out. I think we should probably just start with that. Um, I changed my mind. Extreme, Extreme You is just a great title. And I know you're a competitor. You're an athlete. Not only are you a badass and have run so many companies, but I know you're an athlete. So can you give me like the fastest sprint race synopsis version of this book and kind of why you wrote it? Oh, for sure. So being extreme you is like maximizing your ultimate personal potential. And basically I wrote the book because I got super frustrated that everywhere you look around the world, when we talk about success, we make it sound super perfect. And like everyone has a super linear path to being giant success stories. And my experience and certainly that of many people that I interviewed for the book is so not that. It's so full of embarrassing failures and epic crashes and all sorts of things. And so I just wanted to really shine a light on that and show people who are aspiring to live wildly and be awesome that it's okay to screw up every now and then. And that will be a huge part of discovering the extreme version of yourself. That's, so you do talk a little bit about failure, which 
is a big part of living wildly. And I think people have been afraid to talk about failure. So first of all, this accent, kick-ass Kiwi accent. I love it. So you're, you're from New Zealand. So two questions. One, yes. where New Zealand are you from? Obviously, I'm a big fan. And then two, can you just talk about the importance of failure? Maybe share a time you failed and, and sort of what you learned from it. Sure. Yeah, so I'm from New Zealand. I always joke it's the little island with, you know, almost 5 million people and 50 million sheep. So that says a lot about who I am. (laughs) And I actually come from Auckland, although I spent my high school years in Christchurch. So I'm from all over. I just just have to interrupt you really quickly because the one, the few Kiwi women I know, Sarah, they're like such badasses. Like they they can like (laughs) skin a sheep, make any meal for dinner, change a tire. Yeah. They're good athletes. They're just a lot less soft than my friends and I here. <laughs> oh, I like, I'm proud to hear that, actually. No, I mean, I think, you know, the funny thing is that growing up in such a small, remote place, it's a very cool, sophisticated little country, but it's a long way away, and we're small. And so, you know, you grow up with what I call the underdog advantage, because it's not like we're expecting to have massive success on the world stage because we're little. So anything we do, we just are stoked about, you know, so we just kind of go for it. We don't feel like we have so much to lose. I guess. <laughs> well, I guess that's a good way of looking at it. You know, is there a time though that you failed and, and what sort of lessons did you take away? And if you're comfortable sharing about it? Yeah, I'm so comfortable. I love talking about my fails. Um, I, uh, actually got fired not once but twice in my 20s. I fondly refer to it as the canyon of career despair because <laughs> it was like awful. And you know, the first time it happened, actually, I was working at Virgin Mega Stores, which most of your listeners won't have heard of because it went out of business. But in the days when we used to listen to music on CDs, it's so funny, we used to buy them out of stores. But um, yeah, no, I went in there as um, a director of marketing and I was, you know, just doing my thing, thinking I had it down, when in actual fact, I was so far from having it down. It was a business I didn't know much about. And in the end, I got singled out and fired. It wasn't like it was a whole bunch of people getting laid off. There was one loser girl in the corner, and that was me. And I got you know called into the, uh, to the boss's office with HR sitting there in that horrible moment where like you just break into a cold sweat because you realize bad news is coming. And and I got fired, and and it was more mortifying. Actually, it was just really, really humiliating. And I remember at the time just feeling like, "Holy shit, how am I ever going to recover from this kind of failure?" You know, have a big career here. But what I would say, what I learned from it, is from the sort of very painful process of self-reflection. Like, at first, you run around telling everyone that the reason you got fired was the company's fault. You know, you blame it on everyone else. And then you start to realize that you don't even believe that. <laughs> and, and you start to kind of process it and realize that you actually kind of screwed up a little bit. And there's something that you can do differently next time. And I think the biggest learning for me was that not only it, it helped me be more self-aware, but I think more importantly, it was a big sort of dose of I can survive anything, you know, like once you've been through some of these tough fails, you end up on the other side knowing that you, you'll get through it because you have, and that gives you a shitload of confidence going forward. Yeah, that's such good advice. You've had incredible jobs though, CEO of Flywheel, Equinox, you're now the head of Extreme U, you were the president of Gatorade, director of marketing at 
at Nike, Virgin. I actually know Virgin. Director of Marketing at Atari, Marketing Manager of Air New Zealand. You know, you you climbed really fast and you've been a lot of places. So I have a bunch of questions around this. One, you know, a lot of these companies you worked for seem pretty male-centric. So as a female, yeah. how did you kind of break through these traditional barriers and and kind of land these jobs and, and work with these jobs and, and then thrive there? Yeah, it is funny. Like, I don't remember thinking about them as typically male industries, but they all were. I mean, airlines for sure, sports for sure. Um, and it's funny because I think, looking back, it didn't occur to me that I was a woman in a guy's world. I was just kind of me doing my thing. And I think in a funny way, that naivete just allowed me to keep on swinging hard and going for it and not feeling like any sense of caution that I might be treated differently. And and I think there's a lesson to take from that for young women is that, you know, sometimes it's almost like our own perceptions or fears that get in the way and slow us down. And I think if you just say, like the way I would present myself in the workplace is I'm the most badass executive in, in front of you, not the most badass woman executive, the most badass executive. And that's what I want you to see, you know? I love that. No, I completely agree with you. And I've worked for a lot of just dude companies and, and it's never been been an issue, yeah. but I've just been going to all these panels about women in sports. And I thought I'd ask you, and you have a really good take on it. You also moved around to a lot of industries, like from gaming, airlines, sports beverages. So kind of mm-hmm. what drove you from sort of one industry to the other? And and I guess what I'm trying to figure out is kind of what what was that continuity or thread that made you decide to go to all these different companies? Yeah, I mean, some of them were by design. Like, I really wanted to work for Virgin because I just had such an affinity for the brand. It was anti-establishment. It was sexy. It was all these cool things. And some of them were totally by my screw-up. Like, after getting fired, you take whatever you can get. You know? <laughs> and that's how I landed up in the video game industry, which I freaking hated uh i am clearly not a video game i was gonna Uh, ask you about that uh, i like did not you did not strike me as a girl who plays video games so yeah no and totally and i also subscribe to that terrible stereotype that that video game is a you know all fat dudes kind of sitting inside not getting any exercise (laughs) so i did not fit into that um industry too well and um more power to them like they're doing their thing and they certainly don't need me (laughs) but i do think you know, all these decisions, the the ones that I pursued, like Virgin, was an extraordinarily good fit, and I loved it, and I just had the time of my life. Atari was a fucking disaster, and I hated it, and I was no good for them. But both of those experiences taught me equally as much, and I, I kind of feel like you actually have to not worry. If you end up in a job that really sucks and you don't like it, that's a part of you figuring out where you thrive and, and don't panic. Like you're, you're going to land in the right place. And sometimes you need both sides to be able to appreciate it when it's really good. So, so this is interesting because on this show, we talk about living wildly and, and oftentimes people are like, you know, to live wildly, you got to quit your job and do your own thing. But, but you've sort of managed to live wildly and be a badass within a corporation so how do you do that? Because 
I'm, and this is a completely selfish question. I'm up for a really big job at a really big corporation, and I'm I'm terrified to go back to a corporate company because I'm afraid I'm giving up all my freedom and I won't be able to be the badass version of myself. But you've managed to do it. So sorry if this is a selfish question, but I know other people relate to this. Like, no, how, how do you question. do it? The great question. And, you know, I think the most simple answer, and I landed on this by watching people around me for so many years in big corporations. And I think you have one of two paths. You either focus all your effort on effectively, you know, trying to please the boss and do what you're asked to do so you don't get fired. Or you believe enough in yourself that you know your own complete self and style and set of experiences and passions is what's going to drive that business forward. And so you know, I, I have definitely had multiple times in my career where I was fearful because I knew that I didn't really fit into the mold the same way as other people. But in the end, because I was driving good results on my terms, no one's going to question you ever for doing that, you know? And so I think it's about getting into that corporate environment and being willing to take responsibility for who you are. Like if you're going to play big and play the way that you are, then just deliver and people are going to want more of you. But it's, I think when you get timid and you sort of go, Oh, well, you know, I think the boss wants it presented that way. No, they don't. They want you to succeed and crush it. And so as long as you go after it that way, I think most people are going to love you for it. Is there ever a time when you're at a company where you just kind of failed and failed? failed big in the company. Like for example, I did a photo shoot for Vans once and one of the athletes decided to crimp her hair. We were in front of the Berlin wall and I mean, she just looked like a lion in all the photos and I got a ton of shit for it. I didn't know she was crimping her hair. Like I'm not a stylist. I was the stylist, the makeup artist, like everything all in one. And I was 23 years old at the time and the athletes were the same age as me. Oh my God. God. And I just failed, like completely miserably, like just the photo shoot. Some of the photos turned out okay. Some of them disastrous. Did you ever have an experience like that at Gatorade or, or any of these companies? Totally. I mean, so many. <laughs> Where do you even start? Like small ones, big ones. I mean, gosh, Gatorade, the first effort we made at trying to turn the business around was disastrous, actually. It was when we first changed the branding you might remember this when we changed it from the old Gatorade logo to the big G and we did this big marketing campaign called what's G and it was on the Super Bowl it was huge and at the time Gatorade's business was in decline and we were like oh we're just going to run this great branding campaign and it's going to turn things around and oh no it didn't it made things worse (laughs) and it was like oh my god I mean talk about pressure I've never felt so much pressure internally because the results didn't come the way we expected. But that said, I actually do think generally out of most fails, there's a flicker of an ember of a success in there. And in in the case of the Gatorade campaign, even though the sales results didn't turn around like we expected them to, there was actually this really interesting reaction that happened among young kids online that they were really vibing with what we were doing so we knew that there was something to build on we just needed to get behind it more and sort of build more innovation into it and and sort of do it in a more meaningful way so I don't know I think that in every sort of giant success there's always a few 
few things that went wrong that people probably don't talk about. And every failure, there's some good things that were in there too, you know? <laughs> no, that's good advice. So, so within a corporation, I guess, how do you still be a badass? How can you, you know, still be you even though you have to go to work often nine to five or eight to seven or I whatever mean, I, it is? I th- yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. I mean, we all work all the time these days, but at the end of the day, I, I come back to like, you can be yourself wherever you want to be as long as you deliver results. And I think, you know, we've all come across people who sort of want to play by their own rules and then they actually don't get the job done. And those are the people that don't do well in corporate America, really, because it's kind of like, well, you're a little bit all too much about yourself. But if you and say, I'm going to play by my own set of rules and by the way, it's going to drive this business forward, then who doesn't want that? I want want that all day long as an employer. So I think, you know, in the end, the, the, the lesson is just sort of bring it, bring all of you to everything you do and, you know, outwork and outshine the people around you to drive the business forward. And then you're going to just go to great lengths, in my opinion. That brings up a really good point. You know, actually, I've also wanted to ask you, you've been more of, of the boss now instead of the employee yeah. What what else do you look for from, you know, employees who who want to work with you? Like what makes a great employee? Because there's a lot of people listening who aren't happy yeah. with their jobs and they want to make a switch, but they also have to be a badass employee. So what does it take besides just delivering? Definitely. So big time, I love people who come with, you know, a, a great sort of sense of grit and resilience and sort of passion to, to take their job and take it to the next level. I think one of the things that's it's interesting to me is like that in in the younger employee base that comes through today, I often notice people sort of will come and say, "Well, what what do you think I need to do next to 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 get promoted or whatever?" And in actual fact, the people that are getting promoted are generally the ones that are just getting on and doing stuff. So I love me an employee that is you know, challenging me and challenging the team with not just ideas, because ideas are only good if they're executed and they actually deliver something, but, you know, execution and really getting stuff done because that's that's really going to help drive my business forward. I think you're right. I mean, ideas are a dime a dozen, but people who actually can carry them out yeah. are, are a whole other thing. So let's go back to this book that you wrote. Now you're the head of Extreme You and you just wrote this book. Can you just tell us a little bit about like who you interviewed and why you decided to write it and why now? Yeah. So the reason I decided to write it was because it was a pivotal moment actually when I was giving a speech to a conference of recently graduated um, people and they read out my bio and it made it sound like I was this crushing success story, like with all these great accolades. And I was just sitting there feeling super awkward going, wait, where's the bit about Sarah got fired and Sarah's because Sarah does all these things that aren't so good. And it made me realize that our culture of success in the world tends to paint a very, very, very sort of incorrect picture. And I think that's an unfair message, particularly for young people. So that's why I wanted to write the book. And I basically interviewed 25 people from all walks of life who happen to be world-class at what they do. So everything from Bodie Miller, the downhill skier, to Condi Rice, our former secretary of state, um, Mr. Cartoon, who's a tattoo artist. I mean, amazing, amazing, successful people. And I asked them about 
their road to their successes. And what I learned is basically the sort of what is the book? It's like here's the the ten sort of techniques you can use that they all had in common, and they're awesome. Like they were great, vulnerable stories of them sort of sharing that they didn't always have all the answers, and they did have to learn and experiment as they went. But what they all had in common was just a fierce desire to keep learning and growing, an incredible humility. It blew me away that people who were just so incredibly successful still were sort of humbly saying, what what more can I do to, to help people? <laughs> and just a real desire to, out of their own comfort zones, actually, in the pursuit of their own potential. So, so is there any, like, stories that you can share from either Condoleezza Rice or Mr. Cartoon or Bodhi or, or anybody that just really stuck out with you that they shared? Yeah, oh, God, there, <laughs> there are so many. I mean, I loved Condi, you know, and I said to her, well, how does one know what is the path to becoming Secretary of State? And her opening line was, well, it starts by being a failed piano major. I mean... <laughs> I love that you call her right, Condi. But, like, it's um, like calling Oprah Opes, you know? I know. I, I know. I call, I can't, I call her Dr. Rice and, um, like, her team. Everyone calls her Condi. But, um, but then, like, Bodie was awesome, right? I mean, as we all know, he's one of the most exciting athletes to watch because there's no in-between. You know, he's always on the podium or you know, didn't finish and whatever, but his whole methodology in terms of becoming so good was, you know, he, I never knew this, but as a child, he was physically smaller than the other skiers. So it was much harder for him. He kept, you know, coming in 35th in his races and that wasn't getting him anywhere. And the coaches were saying, you know, just try and incrementally improve. And then he just said, well, no, that's not getting me anywhere. Instead, I'm just going to go boost the wall, you know, and he would crash a lot as he said, you know, just crash more. And the more he crashed, the more he was developing, A, his own strength and resilience, but B, his kind of confidence to ski that much harder than anyone else because he could recover from crashes quicker and um, sort of created his own ability to out-ski everybody else just because he was failing effectively more often than the others and growing from it. So I just thought that was an amazing metaphor for careers and lives. Yeah, that guy. That guy's amazing. One of the things we talked about originally is you told me that we live in this like trophy culture where you get a trophy just for being a good kid. And in New Zealand, my guess is you didn't get a trophy just for showing up. Can you talk a little bit about this phenomenon of, of just getting a trophy for kind of showing up and and not and and what we can teach our kids? Yeah, big time. I mean, this this whole phenomenon drives me bananas. Like I tell people, so I've never ever received a trophy in my life. I'm still trying to win one, actually. Um, and I I love that because it, it keeps me hungry to keep trying. And, you know, it really bothered me seeing my kids come home with participation trophies. And then I started researching it and realizing that as a country, we spend $3 billion a year on trophies. Like, how b- bizarre is that? When you think wow. of the number of people young people in at-risk situations who can't even afford a soccer ball, yet we're spending money on trophies. It's just crazy. But I did, you know, the more I looked into it and the research behind it, it, you know, giving trophies for participating is a really confusing message for young kids because, you know, we're saying everyone's going to be a winner, but you're not, you know, if everyone can be a winner, but you've got to learn and really learn how to drive yourself, push yourself, take risks, you know, all of the things that we've been talking about um, in this podcast. 
And so I think it it made me realize that it was time to effectively call bullshit on that culture. And because I don't think it's fair to young kids. I don't think it's fair to young people because we're almost suppressing their potential when we just reward them for showing up. Totally agree with you. I got a lot of trophies as a kid. Sometimes I deserved them, but a lot of times they were just for showing up. And it's hard. Like <laughs> failing for me is really hard. And um, it's part of the reason why oh, yeah. I, I quit my job is because I wanted to put myself out there where I could fail and fail bigger. And it, it's so weird. Yeah. But now I'm I'm so much more comfortable failing. And I've started to I was going to say, isn't that empowering? It, it is. It's How such do you a feel good, now? It feels great. I mean, I still hate failing and not being good. But I'm okay with it now because I know good things are going to come from it. But, you know, in corporate yeah. America, to move to these companies, you must have sacrificed a lot. And you have kids. So I'm kind of curious to know how old your kids are. And, I mean, did you have to move cities every time? Yeah. Were they all in New York? How did you – I mean, what did you have to sacrifice to kind of – yeah. To go to these places. Yes. No, I'm, I'm, of course, very proud of the fact that I had um, three kids in three different states over the period of five years. Wow. <laughs> like, because I kept, like, getting pregnant and getting promoted or changing jobs. It was kind of weird. Um, but honestly, like, it was a very, very, like, sort of grueling time when I think about it in terms of, you know, having young children no matter who you are, male or female, is a very, very tiring you know, time of your life because you're not getting enough sleep and all those things. But it was also a very invigorating time because I think you know kids bring a lot of excitement and energy to you and you can have a tough day at work and come home and just feel so fulfilled because you've got mm. um, you know, those little people growing up around you. So Today, my kids are 12, 10, and 8, so they're in a whole different um, phase, obviously. So at least I get a lot more sleep now. But there's a whole bunch of different challenges with with kids that age. And I think, I guess a lot of people have said this along the way, but I, I think for me it's all about being very focused and in the moment, whether I'm at work or at home, like not multitasking to the best of my ability. And I have an amazing support system. I mean, my husband is a lead parent. He runs the show and he's awesome at it. And that's kind of how it all works really for me. Wow. Because I was going to ask you, I mean, so many moms, when they have kids, it's hard. They have to quit their job. And you just kept going and totally. moving. And and it's incredible. So how, you know, is, is this, I was going to ask you about kind of establishing a work-life balance, but it sounds like, you know, being present for you is the key. But are there other tactics? Like, do you not answer email after 6 p.m.? Or do you save them as drafts? Yeah, no, good question. Yeah. I mean, one thing I, I actually have done at various periods of my life when, you know, the, the, kid parenting part was the most intense it was like on a weekend I would actually turn off my work email so I couldn't even see it um, between Friday night and Sunday so that I at least had a full day of totally decompressing because I think you often find on the weekends that if you can see issues and problems arising they stay in your mind and bother you if you don't know they're there it's fine you know? yeah. <laughs> and so I think I've definitely had some techniques like that and often you know, we tend to live in such an urgent culture, but actually reminding yourself, it's okay to not respond to someone on a Saturday. It's the, the world is not going to fall apart because you couldn't get back to an email, you know? So I think it's about setting your own boundaries for sure. But I also think it's about being very, very productive with your time. Like I am one of these people, I fly a lot. 
obviously for my job and being in planes, I'm just so productive because I want to get a lot done so that when I get home, I can hang with my kids, you know, and not be spending that precious time um, working so much. So I think it's just about really, you know, making the most of the time that you have and focusing when you're in it. Yeah. You know, there was something on CNN with the Pope last night about, you know, social media and just being connected always. Mm -hmm. And it's something so many people struggle with. So, you know, any thoughts on social media, because it's become such a big part of marketing. And obviously, it's such a big part of what you do is marketing. But kind of on dealing with social media versus kind of living in the now, I think, you know, a lot of people are using social media and comparing their lives to others and, and it's not making them happy. So how do you handle kind of social media, yeah. not only just email? Yeah, and no, a great question. I, I think that those insights are really, really interesting. And I think something we should all be raising our awareness to. Because I, I do think as someone raising kids, actually, and watching, you know, these days, kids are, mine aren't actually old enough to be on social media yet, but they're close enough, you know, in terms of they watch a lot of YouTube or whatever it may be. And you start to realize that that I would not be surprised at all if 10 years from now, just like, you know, back in the 90s that we all thought it was a good idea to smoke and then we went, whoa, that's really bad for human beings. Let's stop that. You know, yeah. I, I could see something similar happening because you're right. It is making people unhappy and they aren't able to sort of get the unbelievably fulfilling experience of real life relationships and you know with the person sitting right next to them and I think I think it's something I'm actually listening in a lot to right now and thinking we we let social media take control of us and we actually need to take control of it and make it work for us yeah it's hard I mean with a podcast now I have to be on social media and so I mean I I guess I cheat in a ways I schedule it in advance so then I don't have to look at it every day but man, it's, it's rough, but yeah. there are some powerful things that have come out of social media. So I don't want to knock it. There's so much inspiration and podcasting is, you know, this virtual experience where you could be listening in, in a car on an intimate conversation. I love that I can actually share this conversation I have with you with so many other people, which speaking of, so some yeah, of our yeah. listeners actually asked me to ask you a couple of questions. One of them was from our friend at oh, skills. Cool. And she said, you know, what's the most extreme cool. idea the most extreme idea that you've ever had that actually got executed and kind of what, and what were the results of that idea at any of the companies you worked with? Great. Yeah. Gosh. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, but yeah, I would, I would actually say it's probably the most extreme idea I ever had is probably this book. And so we'll see <laughs> how it lands. But, um, I actually think probably at Gatorade, you know, when we, made the decision that we were going to evolve the business from just being a sports drink or sports fuel company. And we started making, you know, protein shakes and bars and, you know, gummy chews and all these other products as well. It was a pretty extreme shift for a business that had been doing, you know, essentially one thing for a long, long time. And it was the work of a lot of people, thought of a lot of people. Like I could actually still like vividly remember the day in a brainstorming session when we kind of penciled it out on a piece of paper. Um, this idea of athletes needing fuel before, during and after and us all sitting there looking at it going, wow, that's a really big idea. Wow. <laughs> and it was extreme in that it was a, a shift for for the team. And, and what I would say is like, I think the most extreme 
ideas are often the most like when I look back at it it was actually blindingly obvious that it was the right thing to do but actually still very hard because shifting gears for you know a business that's done things the same way for a long time is is a challenge it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of work and um but obviously in the end we're very successful the business has gone on to do enormous things since I left um but I think it was definitely a lesson in you know recognizing that doing more of the same was not going to enable us to continue to grow that's interesting. And it's cool that Gatorade is in that space right now. So one of the other interesting things is you've been involved with, you know, Equinox and SoulCycle. And what sort of trends are you seeing this trend of experiential group workouts taking off and still exploding? My older sister just launched a boxing studio in Santa Monica. It's a group style boxing fitness oh, cool. workout. Yeah, it's cool. It's called Box Union. I just took the first class the other day. My buns are so sore, but it was fun and it was exciting. The class was packed. Is so this cool. is this like a trend? Yeah. Is it still going? This cuz gyms seem sort of dead, but these like studio type workouts yeah. seem to be growing. Is that the trend or do you see something different? No, it's a great question. I mean, number 1, what I, I do think in general, back to your question about social media, in humanity in general, I think what is growing is experiences that actually do bring humans together in personal ways. Like it's interesting if you look across trends, restaurants are doing very well right now, theme parks, boutique fitness experiences, you know, it, it which makes me think that as humans in general, we are craving that because mm-hmm. we're spending so much time on our devices. But I do think that w- this boutique phenomenon, we are just scratching the surface of what it is and what it's going to become. And it's funny, the major investor behind Flywheel, a company I'm at now, he actually built the Coach handbag brand. And he basically was saying back in the 90s, you know, we used to all shop at department stores and then the boutiques came along and they've taken off and we've never gone back. You know, if you look at the numbers of boutique retail compared to department stores. Yeah. And I think the same thing is happening in fitness and is going to continue to happen because I think people like yourself, your sister, like you want a really fun experience and a community experience and you you sort of want that intimacy that comes with a small group around a small boutique that is just different to a, you know, a bigger mass market gym. That's right. You were at Flywheel, which is so cool. You told me what Flywheel was like and there's none in San... Is there one in San Diego? No, we've got okay. to get there, actually. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I need to try it, but I don't think there's any near me, but there is one by my parents' house in West Hollywood, so I'll definitely check it out next time I'm there because there, you oh, said cool. it's great. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I just want to ask yeah. you, I, I know your time is valuable, and this podcast is supposed to be the length of time of a run, so this is going to be a good run for someone. Cool. What, what advice yeah. can you give to others about living more wildly today? Gosh, about living more wildly. Um, I think my biggest piece of advice is to stop worrying about what can go wrong. I mean, I think pretty much any, you know, sort of older grandparent age person on their deathbed looking back on their life would probably say, I worried so much more about things that never eventuated (laughs) and probably didn't even think about the things that came out of the blue that were difficult to deal with. And I think it's the human condition to to be worried and fearful about the things that can go wrong. But 
if you reframe it and just say, even if it goes wrong, it's actually going to lead me to a better place because I'm going to learn and grow from it, then why not just be wild? What have you got to lose? I love that piece of advice. So I don't know what you were like as a little kid, but I'm guessing you were a pretty awesome little 15-year-old. I always love to ask, especially women, what advice you would go back to give your 15-year-old self? Because I remember 15, 15 is a pretty tumultuous year for most many teenagers, especially women. Yeah. They're sophomores in high school and lots of changes going on. And if you could go back in time and you know, tell your high school or even your college age self one piece of advice, what would you tell her? I think I would say just chill out a little bit. <laughs> I think that when I was that younger, you know, I was always ambitious and I always was in such a hurry to get there. And the funny thing is now that I'm 45, almost 45, God forbid, and you suddenly realize, holy shit, this has gone too fast. And <laughs> I just, I think you don't realize that you're suddenly going to wake up one day and realize life and it's going by too quickly. And so just chill, just relax a little and enjoy every moment. You know, that's more important than racing to get place, I think. I love that piece of advice. And you know what? There's actually been a couple other people who've, who've told their 15-year-old self to chill out. I think it's good advice. I was also a total overachiever at 15. And oh, I'd that's funny. I'd oh, love to I'm tell, not alone. No, you're definitely not alone. I'd love to tell my 15-year-old self to just like chill out, care less about grades and just being the best and a perfectionist. It's, it's kind of annoying and perfect people are annoying anyway. <laughs> That being said, besides, yeah, totally. your, besides your book, is there any books that you've read that you recommend or that you gift often to people? Yeah. You know, my favorite book actually of my life, and I read it in the 90s, so I would have been, I guess, in my 20s, was uh, Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela. Mm, I love and that book. For so many reasons, he's just such, such an extraordinary human. But it was it's an incredible story of resilience and, you know, of humanity, quite honestly. And, and, and I think it, it's very, very inspiring, but it just makes you realize that everything that we're all dealing with every day is pales in comparison to some of the big issues that need to be tackled in the world. And learning to have resilience is such an important thing, you know? Yeah, I love that. I loved that book as well. And I actually went to South Africa and worked as a reporter and went to Robben Island, saw where he was at. And it's such, a, such an incredible place. He was such an incredible man. If you could fly, oh, yeah. if you could fly totally. one of those like cool planes, let's make it an eco-friendly plane because <laughs> we're an eco-friendly podcast, and it could have a banner that read one message to the world, what would your message to the world be? Oh my gosh, that's a big question. I don't um, mean to put you on the spot, but I know you can take the pressure, Sarah. You're kind of a badass. Yeah, I know. What would that work? I think it would be bring all of you to all that you do. I love that. Bring all of you to all that you do. Sarah, I love having you on the show. I think we're going to have to do round two after the book tour and as Extreme You kind of evolves because you gave some really great nuggets of advice and hopefully the audience was able to hear all of that. Where can people find out more about you? Where can they get the book? I mean, we'll put the link to the book on the show notes, but where can people find out more? What's the best website, social handles, and more to find you? Yes. Um, so extremeu.com, extremeyou.com is everything is all there. And by the way, on the website, there's a really cool new quiz that you can take to figure out how extreme are you today? So cool. it gives you some real insight into whether you need to up your game a little bit. 
Um, and then, yeah, Twitter and Instagram at Extreme SRO and on Facebook at Extreme Sarah. So I would love for people to reach out and say hi, and I'd love to hear their stories for sure. I will put all of that in the show notes. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on Wild Ideas Worth Living. You are living a wild idea right now, so I love it. Thank you again for coming on. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you want more of Sarah Rob O'Hagan, go to wildideasworthliving.com, play Sarah's episode, and a page will open up with links on where to find the book she recommends, as well as where to find her book. And if you really like this show, tell a friend. You can also sign up for our email newsletter while you're at wildideasworthliving.com. Every week we send out the new episode and we're going to start offering some live events. So stay tuned. We'll announce that in the newsletters. In the meantime, we have some great guests coming on this month. All live their wild ideas so you can too. Wherever you are in the world, if you're in the car, on a run, at work, don't forget some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week.